0: listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgvm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGBM Community Radio. Whether digging up a
1: site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists,
0: and historians about how they bring the past alive. So we are so excited to have our good friend and colleague here with us today, Dr. Riley O'Jay. Nancy and I are sitting here at the Extreme History headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, and we have Riley on Zoom from... Um, Missoula, Montana. We also here at the Extreme History headquarters have Steve Durbin of KGVM, and he is recording and editing this conversation. So, so thanks so thanks, much, Steve. Steve. Yeah, for doing this. You make us sound good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Riley, we first met. Uh, When we both attended a Montana Archaeological Society meeting in Billings, Montana, way back in 2008. I don't know if you remember that, but I sure do. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yes, I do. I do.
0: You gave a presentation on concealed objects that had magical value, if I remember correctly. It was a long time ago. And your topic was so interesting and something that no one else was presenting on at that time, especially at the Montana Archaeological Society meetings. I was fascinated with your project then, and of course, I'm still fascinated with it today. And we've had the opportunity to work together here and there um, ever since that fateful time in 2000. So it's wonderful. But I'm so excited that we get to talk about your book today, your new book, The Archaeology of Magic. And for those of you who don't know Dr. Auger, she is the curator of anthropological collections at the University of Montana, where she also teaches courses in historical archaeology and cultural anthropology, including, of course, courses on myth- ritual, and religion. She specializes in the anthropological and archaeological study of belief systems, a topic she has researched, presented about, and published in the U.S. and international journals for 16 years. In 2016, she was awarded the Society for Historical Archaeology Kathleen Kirk Gilmore Dissertation Award for her work on gendered magic, which we're going to talk more about today. So, so welcome, so Yay. much, Riley. We're so glad to have you with us. Hi, I'm Riley. To
1: be
2: here, thanks for asking.
1: Yeah. Um, so, welcome to the dirt on the past, Riley. I've also known you for probably about a decade from archaeology meetings, um, and also because you are the one who assists me when I'm coming to do research. at in Missoula at University of Montana's Anthropological Collections Facility. So I'm grateful you you usually let me see what I'm asking to come see mm-hmm. after I sign the, the correct form. So I'm exactly. so excited you're here because this topic is so perfect for October and for Halloween. We're talking about magic. But more than that, I am excited because your work in particular is so multidisciplinary. You use anthropological theory, historical documents, and archaeological data to investigate magical practices. Um, And in particular, what's so fascinating is the use of fairly common and utilitarian objects that were just used by people who were feeling the need for some sort of protection or control. So you refer to such things by what has become a new word in my vocabulary, apotropaic. Am I saying that right? Almost, apatropaic. Apatropaic. I just did it wrong. Apatropaic objects and practices. So these are things, rituals or objects that provide a sense of control or security, um, particularly in uncertain times or for unpredictable circumstances, something maybe like childbirth. So the research for this book, you have focused on British and early Anglo-American communities in New England between 1620 and 1725. So really this kind of first century of settlement up there. This is a period that overlaps with Puritan settlements and the Salem Witch Trials, which we'll, we'll get to a little bit later in our conversation. But first, start by telling us about what led you to study the use of magic among this particular group of people at this place and time.
2: You know, that's a really important question, um, specifically for archaeology, because up until I undertook this particular focus, All of the archaeological considerations of the use of magic in in any form in American archaeology was always focused on that cultural other. Um, There was quite a lot of work done on slave plantations, um, African-American conjuring houses, um, the overseas Chinese, uh, even a little bit on Native Americans, but the focus was always on a cultural group that historically we have looked at as still being somewhat superstitious. And um, what was so obvious was our our blatant ethnocentric um, and condescending superior attitude you know that it's it's still these other people that practice those kinds of beliefs. Um, we are so beyond that. You know, as we um we've come through the Enlightenment and we are scientifically minded. So of course, you know, the the Anglo Americans wouldn't have done that anymore.
1: Abandon Which their superstitions. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was
2: just so ridiculous. Um, and right. so I wanted to basically. Open up even this playing field and make everybody aware that every culture, every group of people, at some point, whether they still do or, or they, they, you know, have ceased to some degree throughout their, their cultural histories, but every cultural group has practiced what we call magic, including the Anglo-Americans, the Europeans. Um, And and obviously, this particular time period that I chose, I chose specifically because it overlaps with the witch trials. If there is any other time in American history that screams, hello, Anglo-American, European people believed in the supernatural and applied magical remedies, this is it. So let's just open this box, you know, and, and, and put it on the table.
1: Great. That um, that makes a lot of sense and a great place to start. And I think it's things that that period we know some things about, but not at all in this detail. And and one of the things I like is you start in your book, setting out that more broad anthropological framework. So you talk about, as you have said, this is something that all peoples have done, probably at all times and places wherever there have been humans. Um, now, long ago uh, in the 1920s, in the very sort of beginning of formalized uh, anthropological research, uh, Bronislaw malinowski he's that Polish-born British ethnographer that really pioneered how to do an ethnography from sort of the native's point of view was his, his phrase. He made magic an explicit part of his ethnographic study among the Trobrian Islanders. And he was one of the first anthropologists to really equate magical practices in small scale societies with equivalent. Practices um, in Western societies that he said we would think of as religion. So he would talk about uh, incantations maybe said over uh, sweet potato gardens or things said or done or carried on open ocean voyages, and and say that these were ways of dealing with what is uncertain and unknown. And and he said this isn't very different from why people uh, seek out religion and ritual practice in Western societies. Um, so he saw them as performing the same sort of necessary psychological functions. And then a while after that, you point out that anthropologists began to equate magic with this, as you said, superstition and pseudoscience, this more primitive, quote unquote, primitive irrationality, typical of societies that Europeans looked down on that saw as being in a, a less developed stage of cultural evolution. But that really isn't any longer the case among anthropologists. And in fact, magic itself has become um, a more central topic of study uh, among anthropologists and others. So I wanted you to tell us a little bit about that, how it is that you see magical practice in relation to religion, maybe differently from Molinowski, and how and why anthropologists now view magical practices as something uh, more important to study in past and present societies.
2: Well, I don't know that I I really disagree with Malinowski much in his um, analogy between the Trobriand Islanders' use of magic and and how within Western religions people do the same kind of thing because it really comes down to both of those frameworks if they even are distinct frameworks. Are representative of a what we call the magical mindset or, or magical thinking, and that all really comes down to a particular culture's worldview. And worldview ref- refers to, in, in many ways, um, how people really understand how the entire cosmos works. What is actually possible? So. Um, is it possible for things like supernatural beings to exist? If in that cultural worldview, yes, is the answer. Um, well, that, that's the foundation for religion. If if you don't have that basic belief that supernatural entities can exist, then you would never have deities. You'd never have gods and goddesses. Okay, so you couldn't have any kind of religion that was based around some entity that you worship and and, um, believe has powers. So I mean that's the premise of all religion is this magical thinking um, that includes beings beyond humans, beyond our um, capabilities, and that they have some kind of influential powers that can work through a variety of of conduits, whether those are thoughts or words or objects or, or attributes, you know, like colors or, or whatever, all of those things have to exist within the worldview that says, yes, this is not only possible, but we've all agreed this is how the world works, OK? So, so that's the basis for both religion and any other kind of magical application, OK? Obviously, within Western religion, um, those things started to separate out. Not, not that magic disappeared from our formal religious practices, but they were being called out and condemned by those religious leaders who saw people taking control. Um, you know, using that magic to address those issues rather than praying or rather than going to the priest as the intermediary to speak to God. Um, so basically, people were taking control on their own. Not that it was not really the same ideas or, or belief in powers that was being contested here. It was just who has the right to be the, the, the authority and the the um, the wielder and the manipulator of how that power can work.
1: That okay, intermediary so, with the supernatural. So it it whether each individual can enact these practices or things themselves versus in a more hierarchical society, I suppose, where there are specialist practitioners it, who do that. Exactly. Very interesting. Yeah.
2: yeah. So yeah. so. Religion and magic are much more intertwined than many anthropologists have even admitted they, they've tried to separate them out as these two distinct kind of Religion is formalized and communal. Magic is personal and and mundane everyday kind of manipulation of things for personal benefit. But but in fact, it's really not like that. They're, they're very much the same system. Um, and intertwined in very complex ways.
1: So is that a holdover of our
2: ethnocentric biases, you think? Oh, it absolutely is. And that leads into your other question um, about how anthropology and archaeology is now approaching and thinking about this this concept of magic. Um, In the 21st century, we have all these amazing new theories being uh, applied, that are trying to totally get away from these notions of ethnocentricity and even um, duality, which is again, very much a Western kind of concept, you know, um, nature, culture, you know, good and bad, all these kinds of ridiculous, you know, male, female, uh, human, -human, non-human and opening up this exploration of different kinds of ontologies and especially with um, indigenous archaeologies really opening our our minds and our our ability to accept not just consider but but truly accept that there may be other ways to understand the cosmos and there may be other forces out there you know that there may not be that, that distinction between humans and animals that the Western mind ha- has tried so um, diligently to to separate. Um, and so in, in 21st century archeological theory, we're really starting to look at these other ways of understanding the, the life forces and the energies and the um, the powers, and the, the relationships and the interactions that so many other things can and may have in the world. Um, and so that's where this connection to magic and, and um, anthropology are really um, blossoming right now.
1: That's fascinating. It's yeah, so a much it more of a continuum. It seems like you're you're saying, and it's opening up a lot of um, possibilities and connections.
0: Yeah. So Riley, yep. let's move. We've talked a little bit theoretically here <laughs> for the <laughs> last few minutes. So let's move more to the physical. And what are some examples of the apotropaic? And I'm am I saying that right? Say it again. Apotropaic. Apotropaic. <laughs> There you go. We'll get okay, it. We'll
1: get it by get the it. end of this interview. We
0: will get it, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so they not Patrick putting Peg, money on it. You know, A no, Patrick, bear. Okay. Um, objects and practices you came across in your research of 17th century New Englanders.
2: Okay. Um, well, as you noted at the very beginning of this interview, most of these objects are just everyday utilitarian things. Um they they do have some attributes that might single them out that' that'll, helps you figure out if, in fact, they, they may have been used in these magically protective ways. So sharp objects, which includes things like knives and um, the pot hooks that you hang in your, your fireplace to, to hang your pots from, um, scissors, um, pins and, and pins can be used for anything from uh, like sewing or, or attaching your your um, little shawl around your shoulders or um, burial shrouds. I mean, they, they use the same kind of pins for a, a variety of things, but, but pins, nails, um, hose size, I mean, all, all these different kinds of agricultural and and um, domestic tools, if they were sharp, then that was a good candidate for being magically useful um, because the belief was apparently evil things are easily harmed. they don't mm-hmm. like to okay. get poked hmm. and stabbed and, and cut. And cut so the, yeah. the, oh. they're they're, 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 they're pretty easily harmed. So all of these notions of something sharp is underlying the belief that the evil itself can be physically harmed through that sharpness. Most of those objects also have a secondary magical attribute and that's that they were made out of iron, um, uh, which is why horseshoes are considered one of the, the most magical of these protective elements. Um, so, again, anything made out of iron works. Um, you, and, again, you have your horseshoes. You have studs, the nails and, and the larger studs put on the, the doors. They didn't just hold the, the door planks together. They actually gave it that additional magical protection. Um, other sharp things could just be little fragments of pottery or, or shards of glass, uh, the shards of glass had an additional attribute and that was their, their flashiness, their, mm-hmm. their shininess. Evil apparently doesn't like flash. Any object that had any kind of shininess to it that, that reflected or, or um, could catch the light in some way. And, and once again, you can imagine all kinds of things that do that. Mirrors, And um, little pieces of glass and um, even shiny feathers like peacock feathers, all of those kinds of things. Um, uh, Anything that's perforated. So poke a hole in something, a Mm. stone that naturally has a hole in it.
1: Hmm. Uh,
2: Piercing a coin. So... um, you can wear those things. You can attach those to other objects. Um, so, so many things that are just laying around your house, or that you are one moment using to, you know, cut your hair with a <laughs> pair of scissors, and then all of a sudden you can put it under your, your baby's cradle, and it'll protect that baby from being bewitched. Okay. Um, Yes. And all of these kinds of objects were found in these particular sites that I was looking at in New England.
0: Okay. So it's this is so interesting. So let's dive a little bit deeper with this. And, you know, you're talking about things that are um, used domestically often. And so we can kind of Um, dive deeper and talk about where these things are located in these domestic spaces and then of course you talked a lot about how gender plays a role in understanding how these objects were used which types of items as well as where they were placed to be most effective um, their context um, to make them most effective in particular you speak to boundaries or thresholds as places that can be dangerous or concerning to people Who lived in the past? So tell tell us a little bit about that history, and if it begun began in North America or if it was transported from Britain by these early colonists.
2: The notion that thresholds are that that um, delineating line between your reality and and some other reality, whether that's danger or you know the territory of someone else or Or whatever is universal all cultures have this notion that you have to define your thresholds you can't just have this open permeable kind of space because there are all cultures believe there are innumerable dangerous elements forces whether they're visible invisible spiritual physical, whatever, that are surrounding you. And so you set up your thresholds. Um, we then decide what kinds of barriers to erect at those thresholds are going to be effective against what kinds of threats. Uh, obviously, you know, a really thick door uh, is going to keep out that that potential thief, maybe, you know, if you have good, strong locks. Um, so you, you cover all of your thresholds, all of the ways that something could possibly get into those, those holes in your house, your, your windows, your chimney, your, your door, whatever. Um, but supernatural things don't stand at your door and knock and wait for you to open it. They, of course, can seep through any of the cracks you know, that they can shapeshift, and they can, um, it wasn't a belief that they could move through solid objects, so it's not like no matter what you did, that they couldn't get through the door, which is why there's this emphasis around thresholds, because there's always going to be some kind of little gap, little Mm -hmm. crack around that door, or, you know, down the chimney, um, or around those windows, even at the, the, corner intersections of a house or along the very base walls of a house. The idea is that th- there are these microscopic kinds of gaps there, and that's where the evil is going to try to seep through. So those are the places, of course, where you have to rely not just on the physical material of the door or, you know, the, the window, the glass, whatever, but you have to add to that these elements that have protective powers. So that's why the thresholds are always the the area of concern. Um, And so, yes, our our settlers from Britain brought these notions, these ideas and beliefs and practices with them, but they didn't originate with the people from Britain. I mean, these are the same ideas that all people have around the world
0: yeah so every every culture has these ideas
2: exactly right, right.
0: And is the idea that it's some sort of yeah.
1: generalized evil um that you don't want it to penetrate your personal, private, domestic, safe space it's it's not necessarily a a physical entity coming in, but you, when you're saying you want to protect a threshold with these placing objects a certain ways the idea that there's just some evilness that You want to ward off. So it's some kind of amorphous evil entity, you think, in some cases?
2: In some cases, it is. Um, Most people have a conceptualization of both of those occurring, that you have very distinctive um, beings, which is the devil, particular kinds of demons or, or whatever. But in conjunction with those, are also these these more nebulous kinds of like you say amorphous evil energies that can just permeate things so, so it's a combination of both
1: yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna press you on this a little because, of course, as an archaeologist, I'm thinking of many places around the world and times where people don't have thresholds, they don't have doorways, um, they maybe don't even have structures. So I'm so interested in the universality of this belief in so many cultures, and then thinking about where and how that originated, and why is it something that comes part and parcel with the idea. Of architecturally defining domestic space, because there there were so many other ways that humans organized
2: themselves on the landscape, you know. Right. Um, in most cultures, and I talk about it in my book as well, there is often this analogy between a house or, or some kind of domestic structure and the physical body, and so. Even for cultures that don't inhabit what you would call, you know, a structure with doors and thresholds and those kinds of things, you will see that those people are actually applying different kinds of um, imagery, um, substances, ochre, paints, um, uh adornments, different things to their bodies because they are protecting the thresholds of their own bodies.
1: And that's fascinating because that goes very far back. We have evidence for that going back to the earliest of of humans. um,
2: Absolutely.
1: Farther than Um, 200,000 years. That's fascinating to find that relationship. And that makes all the sense in the world with domestic space kind of starting with the body and then incorporating.
2: Exactly. Because the the whole notion of domesticity is that's where you you live you reside with your family you know with, with the um, your immediate family the, the community whatever that that's where your group is and tries to maintain a sense of safety mm-hmm. and, and security mm-hmm. um and so if your threshold really is your body, your that's your domestic shrine, if you will, um, you need to make sure that all of the, those orifices, all those holes in your body are not going to just be wide open for all of these, these um, nebulous forces to be able to penetrate and then possess you, which then you are going to be um, contagious right possession is often considered these evil spirits it's considered contagious someone comes into contact with you now they are susceptible um so
1: and how parts of you if they're taken your hair or your fingernails could then become part of a way that someone can do evil against you so so that links that all back yeah um, I love your focus on, on gender, and in, in talking about these spaces, you bring up some fascinating cross-cultural examples. So Indian women who make these uh, artistic sort of geometric designs outside the threshold of their structures. Did you say columns is how we say that? These columns. So they draw them outside columns, their th- yes. thresholds. Yep. And then you also discuss how women maybe are even embroidering certain designs or things on clothing, maybe even next to, again, these places where the clothing would cover a particular part of their body or orifice as protection. So I, I was really thinking a lot about um, the difference between men and women and, and the use of magic in these ways that are maybe more artistic might be a way to sort of Camouflage that they are using magic in very patriarchal societies, and and if you think in in very hierarchical patriarchal societies, did women maybe have to be more careful about how openly they practiced magic using objects and things like that in places? You
2: know that would be really culturally relative. Um, looking at the particular group that I was focused on, the the Puritans of 17th century New England, you couldn't find a more hierarchical, patriarchal um, community than these folks. But in that community, it was equally dangerous for men or women to openly use magic. So In other cultures where, again, just general magic use would really be frowned upon and and, um, uh, considered taboo in so many ways, even within a patriarchal society, you could still have a very revered female oracle or sorceress or shaman kind of figure who would be wielding magic very openly. But the men in that community may not be allowed to at all. Okay. So, I mean, it, it, it's not, unfortunately, it's not that simple. That, and that's what mm-hmm. I was really discovering writing this book, as my focus was gender, that it's so complicated. It's um, tied which to is so many I, other
1: I mean, aspects of it's culture. It's tied to so
2: like. many other factors. Um, and, and I bring that out in the book that because you can't just get at it in this very simple gendered kind of way. I had to look for some other indicator that would allow me to see genders using magic in different ways because the objects were relatively the same. Um, they, They were both men and women weren't supposed to use magic. Um, there were consequences for both of them using magic in different ways. So, um, yeah, it, it's a very complicated thing. So, um, yeah, so, I, I can't really
1: answer your question. <laughs> yeah, no, and it just made me think more that in any culture I'm studying, it, it'll be a question that's that's in my head. Um, but in this particular case, you know, we're so interested here in, in how historians, archaeologists do their work. And as you were just saying, how you found the particular information you needed to look at magic and gender um, in 17th century New England. So in this case, you not only used these broader anthropological um, resources for analogies, but you draw from historic documents and archaeological sites. And I want to ask you first about the historical references you used which are fascinating. Um, You you get into some things that will tell you about um, apatropaic objects, amulets, superstition, and looking at diaries, headstones, sermons, trials. Tell us a little bit about what kind of documents you were able to use to begin to untangle magic and and gender.
2: In this particular time and place, because the use of magic and Um, witchcraft in particular was illegal. The easiest place to start finding references was actually in all of these court documents. So anytime someone would be accused of something and it, it wouldn't necessarily show right up front that this person was being accused of witchcraft, but they had other euphemistic kinds of terms, you know, um, uh, Slander was a very common one, but mm-hmm. the slander was usually one person accusing someone else of being a witch. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and and through those, um, those depositions, then they would have to get into detail. Well, why are you saying this person is a witch? Well, because, you know, she um, she told me that, uh, you know, I would be sorry for not giving her that that loaf of bread um, and then you know I my my butter wouldn't come after that and um, so obviously she was a witch well but then I, I put a, a broom across my door sill and then she couldn't come in and then my butter was okay and so it's it's looking into these very um, detailed court records where most of this evidence was actually, you know, hidden away that, that you start eking out the, these little bits and pieces of how these people, again, understood their world and the, the cause and effect and consequences that are these signposts of magical belief and magical recourse to certain kinds of behaviors. So. Uh, I got a lot of my information out of a whole range of court documents. Uh, like I was saying before, the church absolutely condemned any use of magic that people didn't really listen to. Um, <laughs> so did the and, church get and, specific about describing yeah, the magic? The, the church magic? Would get specific, and, and that's where the sermons come in. Okay. Um, the ministers would rail on and on about, you know, um, don't be using those those poppet dolls and, you know, oh, they're giving people ideas too.
1: Yeah.
2: And, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, people sitting there and not to get me a hors- poppet doll. <laughs> I, I hadn't thought of that. Right. Um, right. And, and, and so again, you have a whole range of um, communiques in which people are given at least some license to talk about magic and and the kinds of objects that were used magically because generally people wouldn't talk about it um, because it was illegal um, because they, they could be setting themselves up to be uh, accused of witchcraft themselves. So Riley just were very,
1: very cautious. Yeah. Sorry. Just the sheer fact that there's a law against it. Yeah means yeah. that that's telling you so much about the world view. I mean, we don't have laws really against witchcraft. I don't think right now. No. Um probably there's more laws protecting your religious freedom than there are against it. So, it's telling you so much about that world view just by what you're not allowed to do or say. So Absolutely. So, you
2: know, just looking at what laws are on the books, looking at the the actual um uh court cases um Looking at the sermons, every once in a while, in somebody's diary or in their letters, they might make some kind of an offhand remark about something. Um, and then there are other, more accepted scientific um, sources like herbals. So okay, that these yeah. fantastic botanical books that were not only you know recording um, actual plants and and uses for plants and how to grow them and uh, that kind of thing. But underneath that understanding of plants, there was still a very magical understanding of plants powers and plant connections to God and and plant connections to the stars and the moon and the sun. And so you have all of these really interesting um, intertwined astrological magical religious scientific understandings of plants again
1: back to your continuum sort of argument
0: yeah so so um you know going back to your book a little bit riley and talking about some of these sites that you looked at so Um, you focused on five archaeological sites that have been excavated by other archaeologists. You didn't do the excavations at these places, but they had been excavated previously. And so you just went and looked at the site records for these five places. There was one in Maine, two in Massachusetts, and two in Rhode Island. And so when you were going through these reports— um, and looking at what was found at these different these five different places, can you give me an example of one or two artifacts that really stood out to you and their context? Because of course, context is the key here, as it always is with archaeology. But <laughs> but really, yep. here it is the key. Um, and because of course, all these things are so mundane; these these artifacts are so mundane and domestic. But um, how did this co- context convince you that these objects were put in place and used as protective devices in these homes?
2: Uh, So the one that really jumped out at me was from the the Chadburn site in um, South Berwick, Maine. And this one jumped out at me because the, the excavator on this particular site, he's been working this site with field schools for many, many years. He already was very in tune to the idea of there possibly being magical objects and was readily identifying a couple within his site already. Um, but he included this object as just part of a general catalog of, of artifacts without any mention at all of its potential magical application, which just surprised me. Mm. Um, and what made it stand out to me, it's, it's a, an iron door latch mechanism. Uh, but its little tab end that would have actually been attached to or, or possibly even stuck into the door was inscribed. So, again, not, not by a professional of any kind. This was definitely done by hand. It was inscribed with little circles with a another circle in the center and then a cross that, that spanned both diagonals of the entire piece. The lines were made up of little dots, so creating this big X, um, which could be read in a couple of different ways. In my book, I refer to it as um, a triangles, the creation of triangles, which, of course, are a magical number three-related um, symbol. But that X is also known as the... Um, uh, St. Andrew's cross, which again has a very long history of being used as a magically protective symbol. So either way you read it, it's, it's, you know, it's the same thing. It's this cross that creates triangles. Um, So you have this combination of circles and triangles and uh, on a piece of locking hardware on a door that would have been obscured or hidden. Mm. So when, all of those things scream. <laughs> I, I am here as a protective element. I'm not here as a decoration. Um, I, I serve no functional purpose to the latching mechanism whatsoever. But, yeah. Uh, so that one really stood out to me from that particular site. But,
0: so was um, this a door, was this a threshold door or was it an yes. interior door? Okay.
2: It, okay. No, it, it, w- it was a really large um, locking mechanism, so it, it would have been an exterior threshold. Okay. But, you know, that really doesn't matter. People attach the same kind of protection to their interior doors as well. Okay, that was kind of my um, question, I yeah, guess, bed- yeah. Bedroom doors. Uh, Absolutely. People were very afraid of the night, and yeah. so any kinds of... Uh, things like succubi and incubi and, and witches and demons and things that would come and nightmares. Night, nightmare nightmares. was not a dream. Nightmare was an actual thing um, mm. that would attack you in your sleep. And so they were very concerned about their bedroom doors oh, being protected as well. And warding so off. Th- that. These kinds of, yeah. you, you had to protect interior and exterior thresholds. Okay. Um, so, Objects from another site that really struck me were from the um, John Howland farmstead in Kingston, Mass. This one had so many uh, things like spoons and knives, iron wedges, scythes, um, wrought iron hooks, all around every conceivable threshold. The exterior of the wall, some of them were embedded in the wall, around the windows, around the main threshold, around the, the hearth. Um, I mean, they, they were everywhere, pretty much encircling this place. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and of course, in, in that original report, there was no mention whatsoever of any kind of belief in magic or or magic as an interpretive frame of any kind. And so this was a, an especially exciting um site and and um reevaluation yeah. of this
1: so that so. kind of brings us to our next question riley is that you know you say so many times archaeologists are excavating sites and areas and they may inadvertently miss the magical significance of an of an artifact particularly if they don't know about folklore culture of that time period or the context now to me finding a spoon in a wall definitely would would keep me up at night as an archaeologist trying to figure out (laughs) what that was. And then I start thinking, like, if you say there's multiple ones, I'd be like, so was it the same person or was it two different people? And what if you go to put a spoon in the wall and there's one already there? I mean, I I just, my (laughs) mind goes crazy. Anyway, that's an aside. But, um, you know, but you're saying finding an open pair of scissors buried in a hearth, that could have meant that it was a protective object specifically. So one of your goals was this book was to really – help synthesize some of this historical data, folklore data, and apply it to the archaeological record, what to look for, for this time and place. So 17th century Anglo-American culture in New England. Um, and create a usable classification scheme for archaeologists. So we, we don't have a ton of time, but maybe briefly, just tell us a little bit about how you did that. That comes sort of in the in the concluding chapters of your book.
2: Sure. Um, I wanted to present the information in multiple ways to show people that there, there's never one way to just classify. Any kind of archaeological information, especially something as complicated as as magic. And so I provided them with three different kinds of breakdowns. Um, One was specifically looking at just general ideas about magic. So um, the spatial component, where are you most likely going to find magical things? Um, Then the material components. Well, what kind of materiality are going to be representative. Uh, So, you know, things like sharpness and iron and and flashiness and and those kinds of things. Um, And then the third element on that particular chart was to try to get people to understand kind of the ideology underneath these ideas. You know, that there might be number numerology related kinds of ideas or, or um, astrological or you know, religious or, or something. So giving them that, that real general kind of framework. Here's a place to start. Look for these things. Um, to break that down further, I provided them also with a chart that broke things out into functional categories. OK, Our, um, uh, agricultural things, architectural things, domestic things, um, and so breaking them out that way then giving them examples of what kind of objects would fit within each of those functional categories that would be potentially magical. And then the third way that I provided for them to to look at this is based on um, the actual objects first. So looking at those object classes. Um, okay, glass, what, what kind of glass objects are you going to find? And then gave them a whole range of potential things. And then where specifically would you find those glass items? Um, and so looking at these three different classification systems, I was hoping that archaeologists of, of all different perspectives and ilks would find the one that, that really resonated with them to say, hmm, yeah, this makes sense. Okay, I, I can I can apply this in my work.
0: I think that's so important because, you know, so many things have probably been missed because they haven't been seen through that lens. So um, I think it's such a great contribution to the to the field. So- and it,
1: it gets us a lot farther away from um, what archaeologists always joke with each other, that when they can't explain something they find in the archaeological record, they say, it must be ritual, because they don't know what the object is used for if it's not utilitarian. But you're actually giving us a way to look at, classify and understand. And of course, that has to be culturally embedded knowledge. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So,
0: um, you know, we've talked about a lot of different items here that are very um, domestic items that you would find in anyone's house, scissors and and horseshoes and those sorts of things. But I have to ask you about witch bottles, because, of course, witch bottles have been in the news a lot lately and are kind of the sexy, you know, um, magical item currently. So i got to ask you, what you know, witch bottles are, are often found and are the most um, common protective artifact found archaeologically and historical, historically. And so can you tell us, first of all, what a witch bottle is and how it was used?
2: A okay, so witch bottle was not an actual protective element. It was a way to identify a witch. Mm, okay. um, so the idea is when someone was being bewitched, um, there was this connection that, you know, some kind of little conduit between the the witch and the bewitched. So if you take anything of the the victim, the the bewitched, and harm it in some way, then that harm will go back through that conduit. The witch bottles were filled with elements of the victim, things like urine and and um, hair and fingernail clippings, or something representative of that person. Uh, a couple witch bottles have been found that have a a, a cutout of the person's shoe or a piece of their clothing. Um, They often have a felt red heart um, and then sharp objects. Um, So you have pins and thorns and um, needles and, you know, any, anything that's sharp. And if it's iron, that's better. You often have multiples of three. So three or nine pins or, you know, 12 thorns or, or whatever. So you put all of these in the bottle. And the bottles can be different kinds of bottles. Uh, in the 17th century, they were usually what's called a bellamine or a bartman, which is a, this bulbous um, stoneware bottle that was originally produced in Germany. Um, but but through the years, people use any kind of bottle that they can get their hands on, even little medicinal vials um, or wine bottles, soda bottles, whatever. So put all of these items in the bottle, and you can do a couple things with it. You can cork it and throw it in the fire in which case the urine is supposed to come to a boil and make the bottle explode and you are watching the people in your village so when that bottle explodes whoever is you know running around screaming holding their stomach because you know they've got these horrible cramps because they've they've now been injured then it's like aha there's the witch so the other way is that these bottles were buried Um, buried underneath thresholds and hearthstones and along fields um, um, like the edges of fields and again the idea was that as the the urine would dry up inside the bottle that again would cause the the witch to experience stomach cramps and and those sharp objects would be perforating the inside of the witch and so you again you watch your your neighbors to see who is all of a sudden complaining of these horrible pains and is in agony. And, uh, and there's your proof. So you can take that person to court now and, and accuse them and, you know, watch them hang. I
1: I am having such a hard time getting my mind around how you steal somebody's urine. And um, (laughs) are you hanging around their chamber pot or putting things under the, I mean, that is just,
2: Well, well, you're not stealing the urine because you're on the side of the victim. So it's the victim's urine. Victim's urine. Okay. Okay,
0: So so, So so let's say your
2: child is bewitched. Oh, okay. You're taking your child's urine and, you know, some fingernail clippings and some hair of your child, putting them in the bottle, and then um, watching your neighbors to see. as So it's the victim. um, So it's
1: easier to get that that stuff. And then it will work its way
2: back.
1: right. That whew, that one would have really kept me up. Um, so I want to hear a little bit more about some of the other things you mentioned, uh, one of them being shoes, often one shoe, and you, you actually did an analysis where it was more often, I think three quarters of the time, more often it was the left shoe, and that most shoes that might be buried in a threshold or somewhere were often children's shoes, although we do have adult male and female ones as well. Um and, and then you do mention something about um, dried cats. So I'm interested in a little bit more about both those objects.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, next to the, the witch bottles, the dried cat shoes are the most commonly found Apache um, object around the world, uh, lots of them being found in Australia. Um, hmm. There's a great researcher there in Australia who has written several Um, works about his finds in Australia. These are so interesting because there are no written sources, historic written sources, that refer to them. There are lots of things historically written about witch bottles, how to make a witch bottle, how to, you know, put the right things in it and and how to identify the witch based on the witch bottle and all those kinds of things, but there are no references whatsoever to shoes and cats and yet they're found literally by the hundreds fascinating Um, so it's it's speculation further research yes as to what the the purpose was behind those um the the general consensus about shoes is that leather shoes take on the actual shape of a person's foot and so is a really good sympathetic kind of substitute for that person. So, the next closest thing to an actual body part or, you know, like hair or fingernail you know, clippings or urine or whatever of the person is that shoe. Um, so, we think that's why they were used. Um, and cats were just really not sure.
1: Okay, so that's leaving us with something uh, for some researcher out there to to dive into at some point. Um, Riley, at Extreme History, as you know, we're always stressing the ways in which history remains relevant in the present and often gives us insight into our own selves and our own societies. So um, just briefly, uh, finish us off with um, how your research is not only fascinating, but why it's actually important for us to understand today.
2: You know there couldn't have been a a more timely moment to talk about this with the pandemic that we're all dealing with Um, this is a major crisis of um, uncertainty and and unpredictability the likes of which none of us have ever experienced in our lives but it really gives us a taste of people in the past and how uncertain and unpredictable and, and Um, dangerous life and the world just seemed all the time. Um, Really what magic is about in our understanding, our our better understanding of of magic is giving us better insight into the idea that when people find themselves in these, these incredibly difficult times in crises, they search for whatever gives them a sense of, Hope and empowerment and control in some way. By recognizing that this is a natural human brain process, there are lots of studies going on right now with neurobiologists and, and um, cognitive anthropologists that are showing that magical thinking is a universal human brain process. It's not s- I mean, the, the particulars are culturally relative, obviously. They, they vary from time and, and culture. But the, the basic magical mindset, making connections between things, and if I do this, then that will protect me. Um, that's all we've been there. And if we can understand that, maybe we can start, moving away from some of these ridiculously xenophobic notions that are, are cropping up again in our, our current world um, and condemning people for the way that they think or um, not understanding that that people need to somehow have a sense of safety in their lives and, and however they, they approach that is it's just a a common human um need.
1: Yeah. So, right. yeah, well said. That is so well Absolutely. said. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And it, it and so it always, you know, when we think about history and archaeology and and the past, it always does come back to the present and and you said that so well and so eloquently. So thank you so much, Riley, for joining us today. It was so oh, good thank to you. see you. And such an interesting conversation. Um, I love our conversations, and so I'm glad I got to have one with you today on All Things Magical, or that we got to have one with you today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we'll post on our website information
1: about your book and how people might be able to get a copy. And until then... We just ask our listeners to keep searching out The the Dirt on the Past.
0: You've been listening to The Dirt on the Past, a podcast of the Extreme History Project and Gallatin Valley Community Radio, KGVM. To hear more episodes, visit our website at theextremehistoryproject.org. Thanks for listening. And until next time, keep searching out the dirt on the past.